It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Nance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Backbone Planning Partners is a marketing name for registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Now let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from our studio here in Tempe, Arizona, the Business Radio X Studios. I'm joined by my co-host today, Ryan Weissmuller of Intrepid Solutions, and then we also have Jason Richardson, founder of Bad Birdie. So we're going to get to that in just a second. If this is the first time that you're listening to our program and you're wondering what it is that we do here at Tycoons of Small Biz, we are today recording our 103rd episode of this fledgling podcast, and we're very proud of that. And it's a podcast that's put together by small business owners for small business owners. We believe that the small business owner in our country is truly the backbone of the American economy. And we wanted to give them a platform and an opportunity to share their story, share experiences, share advice with other business owners who obviously can benefit from that advice. So with that being said today, like I mentioned, I've got Jason Richardson, founder of Bad Birdie on the show with us today. Jason, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, we're excited to, to learn about this. So I have to start by saying, I think Bad Birdie is an awesome name. I played golf yesterday, obviously my golf apparel. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can tell Jason's golf apparel is way cooler than mine is. I do have some decent uh, golf joggers on and uh, multicolored vans. So I did my best with what I have in my wardrobe to uh, try to compete with you today. But Jason, before we jump into the the business side of things, tell us about you personally. Where'd you grow up? Do you have a family, kids? So I grew up in uh, Scottsdale here a little bit north of here Scottsdale Arizona um, from like two years old till college and then I uh, went to uh, school at Azusa Pacific University it's a small school outside LA and uh, while I was out there um, worked in advertising and commercial production for about 10 years before I started Bad Birdie met my wife out there Um, we just had our daughter first daughter last summer so we have a 10 month old daughter named Ivy so yeah that's uh, that's kind of my personal life live in central Phoenix Love playing golf, love working out, love going to uh, spending, uh, you know, a afternoon happy hour with friends and family at, a, I don't know, a restaurant in town. And uh, yeah. Awesome. So 10 month old Ivy, you said is Ivy, name? yeah. It's uh, so you're you're to the point where you're getting a full night's sleep now. Oh, yeah. She's she's like a dream baby. Yeah. She slept, I think, like three, three months through. Oh, so good. we got wow. lucky. <laughs> Yeah, I was lucky with both of my kids. My kids are 22 and 19 now, but um, both of them were good sleepers right from the get-go. Yeah. But one of our other co-hosts and my business partner, Landon, has two-year-old twins, and they were preemies, and they did not sleep well for quite some time. That's got to be wild. Yeah. (laughs) I'm super thankful. I know we want to have more kids, so I'm sure they're going to be, we're going to get the second one to be a little, you know, something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it could be. So tell us more about Bad Birdie. I mean, what what was it that made you start that? Where did the name come from? Yeah, so we just celebrated our five-year anniversary last week. So um, I started in my apartment five years ago. Um, but kind of the backstory about it, 
is I, uh, you know, started playing a lot more golf in my mid to late 20s. Love the sport. Um, you know, growing up in Scottsdale, you're around a certain type of golf culture and stigma. I think a lot of the golf that I knew was very exclusive. It was about country clubs. You have to look a certain way, dress a certain way. And I actually was playing golf in LA at a local muni course, uh, you know, and it was a completely different type of golf. Like you didn't have to wear a certain polo. You don't have to have a certain dress code. And so I think when I got invited to go play at a tournament, um, I had to go and actually buy a polo for it. Cause I'm like, this is a nicer course. I need to have something that looks cool. And it, you know, I like wearing bold prints or kind of something I'd say a little bit more, um, fashion forward or trendy or something along those lines. And, uh, went to a local golf store and walked out with a, a Nike red tiger polo, which is great. Cause I love tiger, but it wasn't super like aligned with like kind of who I was. And I think kind of sp spurred this idea of starting uh, a business to target a very niche market, which is, you know, guys in their, you know, 25 to 40 that want to have a focus on the fun side of golf versus necessarily this like stigma or culture that's been around it. And I think, um, alongside that, you know, I'd also started to follow more, people on Instagram or YouTube, and there started to be this whole trend of people kind of redefining what golf culture is. Um, there's still something, tra the, the tradition of golf is great. There's all these things like country clubs are great, right? But there's like a new younger generation that was kind of like reshaping it and rethinking about it. So ultimately had that idea around Thanksgiving and, you know, was kind of had it in, a, in my drive back from uh, Thanksgiving here to LA, six hours in the car. And I was just thinking, man, there's got to be someone that's already doing this, right? Making a fun golf polo. And, you know, went Google online and no one was doing it. And I was kind of shocked. So uh, over the next five months, figured out how to make uh, golf polos, had no apparel background, really came kind of like a hustler mentality where I, I was in LA. So first place I went is like the garment district downtown. And, you know, I was walking into doors being like, hey, do you guys sell you know, can I make a polo with you? And they're like, no, we're not a factory. Like we just sell fabrics and we're not really actually like a, a B2B store. So ended up lots of visiting, showing up to random factories, trying to figure it out. And ultimately after a couple months, found a way to make a hundred polos. I put about $20,000 of my own money. And during that time had no business plan. I still have never had a business like a, I, I, we have business plans now, but like at least to get it going the first couple of years, it was just kind of like fake it till you make it. And so, yeah, we ultimately, uh, launched by we, me, I ultimately launched, uh, with, a with, I think, eight designs, a uh, hundred polos. And it was in my apartment room, like all the where, all the, the warehouse, right. I'm putting parentheses up was just in my, in my apartment and um, built a Shopify site, did a photo shoot and, and launched it. And, you know, the first couple of weeks, it was just my mom and uh, friends buying polos. It wasn't anyone that was actually like, that was a random person. So that's kind of the initial part. I'll stop there. See if you guys have any more uh, questions on it. I could keep rambling on the story. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I'll make a comment. I'm sure Ryan will weigh in here in just a second. But you said fake it till you make it, right? And the reality is most entrepreneurs have to do that in the beginning. There literally is that fake it till you make it. I am glad that you followed that up with we do have business plans now, right? Yes. Yeah. Ryan would be giving you the, the stare of <laughs> no, death yeah. if you didn't have a business plan today. So what was that point the, the, it obviously the trajectory was fast. Yeah. Where was it that you looked back and this no longer became a side gig? I mean, was there a seminal moment? Did, yeah. did Was there an affirmation that all of a sudden, okay, this is no longer a side gig. This is a business and I'm going to yeah. pivot and go at this full time. Because like you said, yeah. you didn't have this big apparel background that you were relying yeah, yeah. upon to try to build this, this big company. 
Yeah. So I think the story of like launching it to actually becoming a business, I think the first year, year and a half, I still, I still was doing another full-time job, um, but I worked freelance so I could pick and choose jobs. And so I slowly started to see, oh, we're selling more. I can like, maybe I'll take one less job and I can invest a little bit more and see what happens in the business. And oh, actually, well, we sold 200 polos that month instead of a hundred. Right. So I kind of, kind of started, I had the privilege of being able to like scale back my full-time job and move into investing in the company, which is not a lot of people have that. I mean, I still worked nights, weekends, whatever, early mornings to get everything done. But I think there was a pivotal moment where I got a, I, a friend of a friend introduced me to some guys that were um, wealth advisors for entrepreneurs. And so all of their clients that they worked with were guys who had grown businesses from nothing into something and then ultimately had sold it or run it. And they, they were like, yeah, we, we love meeting young entrepreneurs. Like, tell us about your business and no really agenda. But they're like, oh, yeah, when you can become a you know, multiple million dollar business. And I was like, wait a second, like, I never thought that like my mindset was like, I'm trying to make three to $4,000 a month to supplement a mortgage in LA. Like that was the whole goal. And it was supposed to be, you know, I, I read a lot of uh, Tim Ferriss for our work week. It was supposed to be automated, but it was like, wait, these guys who see this all the time, they, they just asked me that one question. Like, how long do you think it'll take you to get to, you know, hit this revenue number? And I was like, Oh, I didn't know that that was a possibility. So that kind of shifted kind of a culmination of started investing more, ended up getting married to my wife, Jenna, who, you know, kind of fun stories. Like we started dating the month before I actually had the idea for this. So she's been along the whole journey with me, which has been awesome. And part of that is, uh, you know, ended up, we were living in LA in a small apartment and we're like, Hey, I asked her, I was like, Hey, can we just live on your salary and go all in on this business? And she said, yeah. So we put everything we had in the line, got loans to finance the, you know, like small loans. I'm talking like tens of thousands of dollars to like finance inventory and uh, go all in. And it was like, worst case, we lose it and we have each other. And so a little bit of a rom romantic story, but it worked out. And so that kind of was like, all right, let's test that. If that worked great, then we could keep reinvesting. And so we just have had this model of like, let's grow, set a goal. We're going to leverage a little bit of debt to, to grow the inventory. And then we hit that and then it sells through. And we've always very, you know, fortunate that we've always actually sold out and we've always had to be scrambling to try to figure out how to grow. And so, yeah, it's just been kind of slow and steady uh, steps every single day and more of like a long-term chip away versus like making big moves and putting everything like, I, I don't know if that answers the question or, but. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it answered what you were get, trying to get from. No, it does. And I think it's, and I'm sure we'll talk about the the growth you've seen over the last couple of years as, as we go on. But I think it is, you know, again, just knowing for, for so many, there's the the misconception about the entrepreneurial business. Even in your case, I mean, this it wasn't an overnight success. No, I mean, this was this was a build. This was something that took time. You're literally, you know, going all in. And, and I think that's a good lesson for so many entrepreneurs out there. Every, every journey is unique, but I love the point you make about the slow and steady. Because it is easy when you start to get that traction, get some affirmation. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm guessing you were tempted to maybe go all in at times, maybe a little faster or, yep. wow, we could really swing big. And all of a sudden, you know, I've got a sale that came out of nowhere. I mean, were you fighting that tug of, of maybe, I mean, you, you clearly had the, the willpower to hold back those reins, but it had to be challenging at some times, right? Yeah. And I think there is, uh, there the truth to entrepreneurism, and I, you know, we have a different business model. We're a bootstrap business. We don't, you know, we haven't gone on raised a ton of money and, and kind of follow that. And there's, there's different types of it, but everyone always thinks that like, oh, you're running a, a really successful business. Like you must be like playing golf every day and driving sports cars and doing all this stuff. And I'm like, no, you have no, like, I actually have none of that. And, um, I actually play less golf than I, than I ever thought I could. Um, and so a lot of times when you do have success, people are just seeing the tail end and they don't see all of the, you know, hours and blood, sweat and tears that go into it. And I think that's, yeah, I think most entrepreneurs have that story, right? Like no one set out to build huge 
necessarily like no one set out. No one's, I'm not doing this to like drive fancy sports cars and play a lot of golf. I'm just, I love being an entrepreneur and I love business and I love, I think what we have a chance to do in the golf space. And I think just making slow little, uh, you know, moves every single day over five years, that's how we got to where we were versus like, I don't know. I, so many times where I was like, let's go like try to raise millions of dollars and blow this thing out of the water. But I'm like, why? Like, why don't we just keep slow and steady? Stay the course a little bit. Yeah. I think it's unique. I, I don't know how old you are, Jason, but a 34. lot of, okay. So on the higher end, I guess, maybe of the millennial type of generation, right? But new founders today, specifically over the last decade, are tip are always looking for that. Can I raise money yet? Right. And they want to, they yep. want to blow it up quickly. And and I think that the it's a lost art to build a business slow and steady and build it the way that most businesses in this country were built to begin with. So I, I first of all, I give, you know, I take my hat off to you for realizing you. that and recognizing that that's an okay way to build a business and actually a really great way. The other comment that I would make is from the outside looking in, there's so many people in every aspect, right? Whether it's the music industry, actors, comedians, whatever, where everybody from the outside says, oh, they were an overnight success, right? But they don't know the hours and years and all of that that went into them yep. getting to where they are today. And that's the same thing with business owners is people don't realize how much blood, sweat, and tears go into building a business, literally blood, sweat, and tears, your wife. So I have to circle back to Jenna, right? Yeah. You mentioned she was there from the beginning. I want to know what her background is and how she grew up to to give her that ability to be that supportive from the get-go, yeah. right? And I'll, I'll lay the groundwork for you a little bit before you go into that. My wife has been with me from the beginning of my business, and we're a little over 20 years now, and we've been married for, oh shoot, 24 years. Yeah. Um, 24 years this August, it'll be 24 years. But she grew up in a family where her dad had a nine to five job, very steady job, worked for a large organization, retired with a pension. He's literally been retired longer than he worked for the organization, right? Because he just turned 93 this year. And so my wife's viewpoint and understanding of things was very different than mine. My dad was an entrepreneur. We never had a whole lot of money. Her life was very, very steady. So I want to know about Jenna's life yeah. and, and kind of what that's been like to get Yeah. Here. So you mentioned family. So Jenna's family, you know, grew up with a dad who worked at the same company for a long time, retired with a pension, very hard worker, but very stayed the course long-term, grew up in the Midwest. Um, my parents grew up in the Midwest, but moved out here. My dad was actually an entrepreneur, had a business out here in Arizona in foreign packaging. I won't go too much into that. But yeah, so Jenna, um, you know, she was a therapist. She's a marriage and family therapist, very much on the emotional, like emotional intelligence side. Like I'm very analytical. She's like the complete opposite. So I think when we work together, she's great. And yeah, I think she's always just believed in me. And I think she's the one that challenges me to be like, hey, like even, you know, even there's a conversation beginning this year, I was like, man, dude, like this is a big risk if we don't do this. She's like, well, why not? Like we got to go for it. And so I think she's always been, you know, Jenna's also someone too, like she doesn't care what the success comes from it. She doesn't care about the money that may come from it. She just is like, hey, are you pursuing your dreams? And end of the day, like as long as we have each other and you're like living a happy, healthy life, like that's all that we need. And I think she's very, um, she's the one that would keep me in tune. Like, I think a lot of people, when you have a growing business, there's certain things that you can do to make you feel like, oh, you know, I, I bought this fancy thing, or I'm a part of this exclusive club. I think she's always been the one to challenge me to be like, what does that actually really even give you? Like, I think we're going to find value in life in, um, for us, and it's in our faith, it's in our family and our friends. So that's, she's kind of been my grounder for that. Yeah. She's been that balancing factor. Yeah. She that, balances me out. Yeah. yeah. 
that all entrepreneurs need, right? Yeah. So you've experienced some rapid growth the last couple of years. You've also got yeah. a 10 month old daughter. Yeah. How, how has that balance worked for you in, in navigating and being able to hold on? You know, you're not getting sleep. You're obviously a very involved father yeah. and you're trying to hold on to the reins on a business that's really taking off. Yeah. So I think, you know, um, with raising our daughter, uh, it's a whole new thing that I'm learning how to do and get better at. I think when I, when I got married to Jenna, there was a point where I had to recalibrate as a husband. It was a different thing to be a fiance or a different thing to be a boyfriend, right? Like when you're running a business, like you still kind of have like some freedom that like of your time in a different way. But when you're married, you're like, okay, we're going to do life together. It probably took me like three to four months to kind of recalibrate and learn how to be a husband and an entrepreneur and run a business. So I'm going through the same thing now with Ivy. I think in the last, you know, the first couple of months, you're just kind of running around with your head off. I think I've been able to calibrate a little bit more arounding like, okay, how do I prioritize time with family? And it, I think it's like, I just have to give myself grace to be like, okay, I'm figuring it out. And then I think Jen is a huge support. She is with Ivy every day during the day and, and helping raise her and hopefully more of our family as we have more if we can. So, yeah. So tell us what the business looks like today. I mean, you can share revenue numbers if yeah. you want, you don't have to, but how many employees are there? What are you doing from a sourcing and a warehousing standpoint? Yeah. So I think I can, um, you know, employees, um, we are um, 17 people right now. I think a year ago at this time, we had about five or six. I know, I think we, we signed our first uh, lease for an office like May 20th of last year. So we're coming up, coming up on that. We're almost already outgrowing it, which is exciting. So we've been very slow to hire and like make sure we're running a cash flow positive business to hire those people. I've never, I've always been like, take on more until you're kind of bursting at the seams and then hire. Um, in terms of revenue, last year was our first year we broke into eight figures in revenue. Um, and then, you know, we're trying to grow at, uh, you know, 70 to 80% growth year over year, at least for this year. And so we're on track to do that, um, which is awesome. And um, yeah, our business is, you know, we're, we're between, I would say average 70% e-commerce business. So we're on that D2C model um, where we are, you know, driving, you know, it's the whole e-commerce sales funnel where we're driving revenue through ads and different things like connected TV and podcasts and whatever else could direct mail. And then we kind of have this whole funnel where we get people in. And, you know, to me, I'm very much like we have to create a great product and also a great, great brand and then have a great customer experience through that. Um, we also sell about 30% of our businesses in the wholesale. We have over a thousand accounts nationwide that are selling into pro shops, um, uh, you know, that are small accounts ordering anywhere from, you know, three to $100,000 a year, but like a lot of the small shops are ordering polos and then they have, you know, members coming in to buy them. And then we also sell to a lot of the main retailers. We sell the Nordstrom, PJ Superstore, Shields, um, Dick's Sporting Goods, Golf Town in Canada, a couple of Dillard's, Von Maurer. So yeah, we're just at the beginning of all this. Like we're learning up and growing up as a team. I think, you know, two years ago we had maybe 50 accounts and now we have over a thousand. And I think it's just, it's a really cool thing to be a part of and see, but you know, we, we love our retail partners and they, they give us a different uh, credibility. They show us that, you know, we get a different type of shopper. So that's it from revenue sales breakdown. All of our manufacturing is done overseas. Um, we started out in LA and we did everything like, uh, I was making polos. Like I was like losing money on basically to ship a polo and make it everything. We like weren't making any money the first year, but eventually kind of got to a little bit of scale in LA, but ultimately there's actually better facilities in sewing and manufacturing overseas. So currently we have a great partner in South Korea that does all of our tops. And then we're also out of China for headwear and other accessories. Um, but we're going to probably be expanding into 
you know, South America and different areas as the business continues to grow. Um, we do all of our fulfillment with a third party logistics company out of Los Angeles. We used for the first three years, we did everything in house, but as we grew the order volume, you know, has gone up. There's a lot of technology to, to sustain that. So we found a great partner out there. We do that with, and then, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of anything else I can, I'm an, I can answer anything. I, I'm curious, and you touched on this a little bit. I mean, you're clearly a, a disruptive product in, mm -hmm. in a space that's steeped in tradition. So yeah. you, you talked about that there wasn't anything out there like you when you first broke into it. But tell us a little bit more. What what was that experience like? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you had a lot of doors just slammed in your face yeah. just because of that tradition. You've, you've now gotten this traction and you're, like you mentioned, some of the stores, you're sitting alongside even some of these brands that have been around forever that, you know, our grandfathers wore. Yeah. What, what was that like? What were some of the challenges you ran into and how have you managed that? Yeah, I think um, we were, you know, the first mover. So I remember in the space, I remember, I don't know who it was. It was some fashion editor at like Golf Digest or someone that was high up and they kind of like turned their nose up to us to be like, oh, you're just some, you know, young brand trying to think you're going to change everything, right? Um, but I think it, it really comes to, I think what the market has shown us and what the market has shown us is that there is a young generation of golfers who want to focus on the fun side of the game. And we are just creating products to support that and support what they're already doing. Um, and so really like, I think from a challenge perspective, we've faced a lot of challenges on like growing up in logistics and supply chain and understanding how to scale. But in terms of what the market wants, I think we're really just filling a need in a sense of like, people weren't already doing this. And so we were coming in being like, Hey, we're this fun brand. We're going to focus on, you know, having fun versus, uh, you know, making sure your swing speed is quicker. We're going to focus on, you know, playing music on the course versus like the, you know, the walk the course mentality, which like, not that that's a bad thing, but there's a huge, there's a huge segment of golf products that are tied to like only walking the course, purest golf movement. And I, I love walking the course when I play golf, but we just, as a brand position ourselves and take the slice of the pie. That's like, we're just out there to focus on the fun side and really the community and the camaraderie that happens on, on the golf course. So, yeah. So last week or the week before uh, our guest had actually started a golf fitness website way back, like 2001, he was doing video marketing, which was just insane. I'm sure you guys are doing a bunch of video marketing mm -hmm. today. But one of the things that really helped him grow his business, which was kind of lucky for him, was that Tiger Woods burst onto the scene, you know, 1997, I think he won his first Masters. And he was really the first golfer that was physically fit, yeah. right? Like, it wasn't that everybody was overweight as a golfer, but he was the first one that was, you know, you could see six pack abs through his polo and he had the big, you know, forearms and big biceps, that yeah. sort of thing. And so that kind of helped his brand, right? So with you, I think, okay, there are some young golfers on the scene. I think of Ricky Fowler, right? He's yep. known for wearing loud colors and being different than everybody else. So would you say that that helps as it, is, I mean, the younger golfers that are on scene today that really are golfing today because of Tiger Woods, right? Yep. Are they helping you to, to be able to drive this message for you? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, I think we're actually just seeing the tip of the iceberg on that stuff. I think we're going to see more and more, um, golfers starting to, um, come in and, and have, you know, more of that younger personality. I think a lot of these guys do have that personality, but golf is, so where am I going? Where am I going with this? I think you're going to see it more. I think from a product standpoint, when you see it on TV, like we're going to eventually get to a spot where we can sponsor players and actually make that connection, like Ricky Fowler was able able to do. And I think also too, like there's just a young group of these golfers. Like they're, it's like people are starting to show more personality and things like that. And even like 
there's a um a Netflix documentary coming around. It's um same as the Formula One producers. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but Formula One has grown a lot over the last couple of years because of this. So now the PGA Tour is going to have a documentary uh, episode series on Netflix about players behind the scenes and see what these guys are like um, and showing their personalities. I think, you know, even the PGA Tour has some sort of measuring system where if you have more social followers, you can get some sort of bonus structure for players. So it allows, like, I think even the tours realizing that they are, there is a new generation and so they're trying to incentivize players. And I think it really just comes to like, how do we show, how do you show personalities? I think golf in a competitive state is so, it's, takes, it's such a mind game. And so I think you end up seeing as anyone, like everyone's really focused, but I think off the course and stuff like that, like these guys are just like normal dudes, fun guys. A lot of our, you know, team has hung out with some of these golfers and, you know, non bad birdie situations. And they're just like one of the boys in a sense. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's, I think, I think we're going to see a big change in the next, like I bet in 10 years from now, I think what they look like, how golf is portrayed. I think it's, the game's going to say the same, but I think the culture is going to just keep more evolving in the same way you see, you know, you see like what basketball players wear, like their shoes and the swagger they have, even like baseball players, the jewelry, they wear, like some of the stuff, I think we're just going to see more, a little bit more like freedom to be, show your personality in golf. Yeah. No, I think, Hopefully. I think it's, a, yeah, I think it's a good thing. I really do. I think it, you know, it, it has had this exclusive nature for decades, right? Yeah. Uh, I grew up, I mentioned, you know, pretty poor. I picked up a golf club for the first time when I was 23 years old. And, you know, my son, conversely, who grew up very differently than I grew up, picked up a golf club when he was eight, mm -hmm. right? Played all through high school, plays today, still, you know, he's probably seven, eight, ten handicap, you know, decent golfer, but he loves the game of golf. But there is still that exclusive nature to where people feel like you have to be upper level income wise to even participate in the sport or that it has to be stodgy older men wearing very basic clothing. So I, I, I hope that it does. And I think it will just expand the sport overall. Yeah. And I think there's so many, all the new golf companies that are coming out, all the new kind of next generation, it's all about that. And I mean, I, I always say like, I, I still, there's still certain circumstances playing a new country club or getting invited to play golf in a certain situation. It's like, there is still this like, oh man, am I dressing? Am I doing the right thing? And I'm like, if we can move away from exclusivity and just be inclusive and being like, hey, just come as you are, I think that will make the game. It'll just grow the game. Yeah, I mean, honestly, why do you, why do you need to be wearing a, a collared shirt to play golf, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot. I mean, you can already see some of like Nike, Adidas, some of these big players. Um, they're kind of toying with like different things there, right? And it's like, how do we respect the game, right? But how do we, we never want to disrespect it, but how do we make it more fun? And how do we just like let people be themselves? And sometimes you want to wear a collared shirt, sometimes you don't, you know, tuck it in, tuck it out, yeah. you know. Well, I'll speak for Ryan and then I'm going to let him jump in with what he's about to ask. But I would ask that you expand from 25 to 50 instead of 25 to 40 so that Ryan and I are included in that. <laughs> I, I, I own it already, so I feel <laughs> okay. included. Whether I am or not, I'm wearing yeah, it. You, so, I mean, any business, I think we have to, at least now we focus on it. But yeah, we have, I mean, one of my favorite things is seeing, I would say, customers outside of our target demographic, seeing a young kid at 10 years old wearing a bad birdie or seeing, you know, a guy that's 75 retiree on the golf course, just like, you know, having fun. So, yeah. So I was going to ask, I mean, just you've, you've, you've had this disruption, you've gotten to a point, you've talked about all these channels and, and kind of the fast growth you've had there. But I mean, where five years from now, where do you think this goes? I mean, you've talked about this trend in the game. You know, what do you see as, as the future, I, I guess, in, in a broad sense, in the niche that you're in, but then specifically for Bad Birdie? 
It's a great question. I ask myself all that, that all the time. Um, I think simply put, I look at it from, you know, like how do we expand our, our product and how do we expand the stories that we're telling about our product and golf in general? And so I think from a product level, I mean, right now we are, you know, a polo, primarily known for our polos, right? So as we evolve, how do we become known for more than just our polos? How do we expand into being more than just a bold print golf polo, you know, brand? Like we have hats. How do we grow our hat business? How do we grow different types of tops, right? Like different types of bottoms. How do we expand and start making and drawing lines to like, okay, well, what's the bad birdie guy wearing before he goes to the course? What's he wearing after the course? What's he wearing to work during the day? If he, if maybe wearing a bad birdie is maybe a little bit too bold, you know, um, and starting to ask those questions. Now we all have to also have to ask like, what other markets in golf are growing? Is women's growing? Is kids growing? Like how can we start making more connections and making the game more fun and inclusive? And it's, we, we have to stay focused, right? Like we've only been able to grow the business off of polos right now, but I think that allows us to be able to test more channels. So, you know, one of my favorite things is working with our product team to think about and dream, like what kind of new things can we be, you know, expanding in? And like, I'm wearing one now. It's our, it's, we're, we're launching cabana sets this summer. It's a button down shirt with matching shorts that I can wear on the course. I can go directly to a pool party in the summer. I can also go on a date with Jenna in this. I can also show up, you know, whatever the occasion is, but it's kind of a, the line between being on course and off course starts getting a little bit more blurry. And that's where I think we can win. And I'm really excited to start expanding into there. I also think too, you know, outside of product, like we have endless opportunities to be creative as a brand and just start thinking about, you know, look at brands like Patagonia, Yeti, Red Bull, Media House, like these brands just like go above and beyond and create cool experiences, content, things to entertain people. And I think if we can do that, you know, I'm just super excited, whether it's digitally or in person. I feel like we have endless ideas and thoughts at the office. It's just a matter of like, when's the right time to execute it? How do we get the budget to be able to support it? And yeah, I think we'll always be, you know, e-commerce. I think our wholesale business will grow. We, ha we have our first retail store in, in Kierland up in Scottsdale. And I think, you know, I, I see in five years, you know, at least five to 10 retail stores. I think there's a huge opportunity, especially in golf markets. The store has been wildly successful. So yeah, just trying to keep growing in all those channels and yeah, just meet customers where they're at. Yeah. So I got some thoughts on that, but let's take a quick break and we'll we'll have a quick call to action for our uh, listeners and we'll jump back and talk some more about Bad Birdie. Hey there, tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years, and you'd like to know what your business is worth, please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you. And thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now back to today's program. All right, Tycoons, welcome back. We got Austin Peterson, Jason Richardson, and Ryan Weissmuller here on Tycoons of Small Biz, and we're talking about Bad Birdie and what it is that Jason and his team are doing to disrupt the golf industry. And so, you know, right before the the break, we were talking a little bit about, you know, where where you go next and how do you expand, maybe beyond golf, maybe just beyond polos, maybe, you know, whatever. So it made me think, so I work in an industry that's that's known for being pretty stodgy as well, right? I mean, my Landon and I work in the wealth management industry. Ryan works in finance. There, there's been an expectation over the years to wear a three-piece suit and, you know, wingtip shoes and, you know, all those kinds of things. And that's just not who I am. It's not the way that I grew up. I love suits and I have some really, really nice tailored suits, 
I wear them on occasion, but when I'm just going to meet with a business owner specifically, which is where we spend our time, that's not the way that they dress. You know, most of our business owners are casual like you, regardless of what that industry is. And so I find myself trying to break that mold as well. What I'm wearing today, I wear to go meet clients. You know, I've got the multicolored vans on, I've got golf joggers on. Usually I'll wear like a button down short sleeve shirt or something that's a little bit different than a polo, but I'm comfortable in that. And so I feel like, you know, you're, you're onto something because the golf industry is, is that way, but maybe it's an opportunity to business wear as well. That has a little bit more of an edge to it. That's something that I would be on board with. I would wear what you're wearing today on the golf course all day, every day, right? Now, maybe I wouldn't wear those bottoms to go see a client, totally. but I would definitely wear the top. I wouldn't be concerned about it at all. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I was doing what you're doing. I don't think I would wear these bottoms either. (laughs) I I think there is, I think we just got to call it what it is. And there are certain kind of guidelines and things that are like industry norm or cultural norm. But um, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, I think what our brand can stand for, right? What the birdie stands for, our logo stands for, what the name stands for is that you might have a little bit more edge. You might have a little bit more fun in life. It says who you are from a personality standpoint, right? Like even wearing fun colored shoes, I can tell like, okay, the people that wear that kind of stuff, like it's going to say you're probably have a little fun side too, you know? And so, yeah, that's where we see a huge opportunity. That's what our customers are also asking for. Like, hey, you know, how do we, uh, how do we create, you know, a solid color polo? We're launching solid color polos in two weeks um, because so many customers have asked. We're testing it and we're seeing, hey, is this something that can work, right? That's why we have these cabana sets. People ask. So I think the nice thing about it is we really kind of ask on, on our customers and lean on them too to be like, hey, what do you guys want? What, what are the things that, you know, you want to wear on the course, off the course? And I think we are fortunate enough to have a really good community and hopefully build a brand off that and continue to expand. And it's kind of like, ask permit, like we're getting permission from our customers. And so, um, yeah, I'm excited too. I think there's a huge opportunity. Yeah. It's a smart way to do it from a retail standpoint, ask your customers what they want and then provide it to them. You've already got some brand loyalty. Why not just expand on, on that? Yeah. So Jason, I'm, I'm curious in, in switching gears a little bit, but, but still on the same vein, you know, you were talking about the trends and even, you know, an economist, I heard him say that, that COVID actually, and that disruption just accelerated a lot of underlying trends that were coming, right? And the world was getting more casual. It, it was yeah. slow, but then all of a sudden with people working from home and, you know, the hybrid office environment, I think today you are seeing, like you were just talking about, people are more comfortable expressing themselves a little bit differently, wearing sneakers to, you know, you don't see the three-piece suit and wingtips in places you used to see it. Yeah. But the other side of that, and what I'm curious of your experience, just talk about your experience the last couple of years through all this amazing disruption we've seen from COVID to supply chain to inflation. Yeah. And and that's really where your business really got its footing over the last couple of years yeah. and really took that next big step. What was that like? Just how did you manage that amazing growth in the midst of all these headwinds that that really are crushing a lot of businesses out there, certainly are a struggle for the consumer in spots? What's What's that been like and what have you learned from that experience? Yeah, I think, you know, speaking to COVID, you know, three, two years ago, whenever that was, two years ago in March, our sales dropped like 90% the first week, right? I was like, all right, this is it. We've, Jen and I have prepared, like, we're going to go out of business. Or we're going to have to figure something out. Um, and then we just got really fortunate, right? I think, you know, certain people in, in, in business did not benefit from COVID and we we're in a very privileged spot to be like our business blew up during COVID and the whole golf industry blew up during COVID, just given the fact that social distancing being outside, like it's like the perfect blend. No one could have planned it. And so I think there's that, you know, I think 
COVID shook up the world from like, a, you know, why are we doing what we're doing? Asking that question about, you know, what are you wearing to work? Things like that. And so I think that, um, yeah, we have a ton of people that um, are able to, like, they wear our shirts to work because their work's like, hey, you know what? You can be yourself more so in work. And I think it's just kind of this recalibration of like, COVID kind of shook out maybe some old policies or things. And I think at the on the other side of it, in a positive light, it's like, hey, just be more of who you are, right? It's like, be more of who you are. Remember where you are, though. Like, if you're at work, like, there are certain things that you need to kind of be respectful of. And so I think there is that, like, you know, even, you know, even telling our own team, it's like, hey, we're at work, but, like, remember where you are, you know? And so there are certain, you know, we're not throwing everything to the wind. But I think what's cool is that more people have personality and they can express themselves. How did you talk, talk about the flip side of it for a minute? I mean, I'm, you, you've had to face some supply chain disruption or at least oh, yeah. the fear of it. I mean, what were some of the challenges you navigated and how did you, what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, so yeah, you asked that supply chain. So supply chain is, it has been, you know, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars last year paying to air freight polos to have in stock on time. So that was a strategic decision to say, hey, you know what? We're going to invest more money and we're going to make less margin, but we're going to have it in market when a lot of companies chose the opposite and said, hey, we're going to like, try to save more money, but they actually missed the market opportunity. So we grew a lot by like investing in that. Um, now it's a big pill to swallow when you're like, Hey, are we going to air freight polos in for, you know, black Friday? Well, it's, we had our biggest, you know, black Friday ever. So that was, it's one of those things. So from a strictly uh, supply chain, you know, to make our polos like pre post COVID pre COVID, we could make polos for in about 90 days post COVID. It went up to 120 days. Why? Because fabric suppliers, labor it's just a huge shortage right so we added 30 days there we used to be able to say x factory date polos are dropped off at our port in in south korea to the port of la 30 days 90 percent of the time right now it's we have had to build a whole matrix that's like a risk management matrix about like what's our average right i think it's up to i think it's like 65 days now so we've added doubled it grown you know um and there's been ones that have even gone longer there's been you know the ports and this logistics backup's a huge thing and then um yeah so we we went into last year being like all right we're gonna like add two months to our supply chain and then that we or even during COVID, sorry we had to like even add more time so we're still struggling with that sometimes you know like we have stuff still just coming in right on time and then it puts pressure on our, our our distribution to like really get it out on time so we're still we're not like free and clear of it we still are like ordering stuff, trying to order it more ahead of time. But then, you know, cash flow, well, then we're putting cash out and cash is just sitting out on the boat or sitting somewhere. So before we get paid, so working through a lot of trying to figure that out. And so we're still, you know, in a spot where uh, I think we're getting closer to a solution. But yeah, it's a, it's a whole new kind of set of challenges we've had to figure out. You, you mentioned, you know, that first week you thought potentially this was it going out of business. Yeah. Then you make this decision you know, when, when still the world's a pretty crazy, crazy place, a lot of uncertainty, you double down when a lot of people won't and say, okay, we're going to make this investment. We're going to make sure we have yeah. inventory. We're going to make sure we have things to sell. Yeah. You, you've talked about this tortoise and the hare approach that you've taken. What was the thought process though, to make that decision to say, okay, we're going to invest. We're going to do this. We don't know what's happening in the world, you know, because every day something was changing differently. Yeah. How did you, how did you come to that decision to have confidence in it? Yeah. So I think I look at, I always have I heard this somewhere where someone was like, you know, the business is only going to grow as much as the market tells you. So it's the same thing, right? Your house is only much as the market will pay. So I always think there's like in the, my mind somehow there's like, okay, well, what does the market need this summer, right? If we're going to make that decision to air freight or figure that out, like I'm obviously sitting there looking at metrics being like, okay, 
COVID hit March, right? Let's say January through February. What was our year over year growth? Let's say it was 50%. Okay, well, that's off season. I'm going to then put that into like a financial model and be like, okay, let's assume everything is going back. We're seeing early indicator signs. That probably means we're going to go 50 to 50% in our peak season. Um, but I need to see a couple of key indicators, right? Like you can go play golf now in public, right? That the um, stay at home policy is lifted, you know, but golf is okay. Okay. Well, we ought to, we saw a spike over the next the two weeks after that, that went up. Okay. That's an indicator. So the risk tolerance, the, it's funny, like we take a lot of risk, but every single one is calculated. Like there's always a financial model. There's always some sort of downside. There's always a plan B. There's always a plan C, you know, it's the same thing in golf, right? Golfers are going out to play the course and they know how they're going to strategically play the hole. And there's always your risk in certain shots. Like we wouldn't be taking a risk, like, unless we thought it was going to work out. Like we never make, we never just like hitting a blind shot if, as an analogy. Cause I think people think it is, but like, there's so many spreadsheets and data analysis and all that stuff. Yeah. So I, I know Ryan well enough to know that he loves hearing from a business owner that's using words like key indicators and find, you know, looking at the financials and, and you know, making strategic decisions because that's what he does day in and day out, right? But it wasn't even just that you made a strategic decision. The reality is because you built the business the way that you have over the years, you had the ability to make those strategic decisions, right? So many businesses are so leveraged that they wouldn't even have had the ability cash flow wise to do what you did, right? You took, a, you took a risk, but it was a calculated risk because you knew that your competitors were not doing it, either weren't able to do it or weren't willing to do it. And so you knew, gosh, I've got the cash here. I'm going to take a risk and I think it's going to pay off because my competitors aren't going to do it or aren't able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's huge to be able to, to do that. Right. And, and you're right. I mean, from a supply chain standpoint, you were able to, to offset that a little bit by paying the extra for the air freight and you forgo some profits today for, for greater profits in the future and greater revenue in the future. Right. But it's funny because everybody talks about the supply chain. You go to the small businesses and you can see it, right? You walk in and, and the shelves are empty or, you know, all kinds of stuff are going on. But when everybody started talking about how much of an impact there was on the supply chain, it was near Black Friday. And I walked into a Costco with my wife and I said, what supply chain issues, right? Because yeah. they've got all the cash flow in the world to yep. do whatever they have to to end around that supply chain, which is exactly what you did. But you did it on a much smaller scale for a, from a company standpoint, but you still took that risk and had the ability to. I think that's huge. Yeah. No, thank you for saying that. Yeah. That was a big, uh, it was like a very stressful week. We had to make the decision, I think, in September for Black Friday of last year. And it was just, you know, we we're buying a small house with air freight costs, but it paid off, right? It was like the risk reward. And it was like, I'd rather have, I'd rather pay the risk to make sure we have it versus, you know, the downside of it is like, oh, well, everything came in on time. We could have saved a couple hundred grand, but it's like just that it's just mitigating the risk a little bit. So, yeah. So I got to ask this question. Um, you moved from LA to here. Mm -hmm. Was it purely a personal decision because of your family being here and wanting to be back here? Or was there a, a business reason for being back here as well? Yeah, I'd actually say it was, you know, to, to be totally honest, when I left, um, and I left Phoenix to go to LA, I, I never had the intention of coming back to Arizona. Um, I think for me, I always wanted to go try something new and explore. Um, you know, I, I, honestly never thought I'd move back here and there was no desire to move back. You know, I, it's close by. I could see my family whenever, whenever needed. It's a short drive or flight. But as we started to scale and kind of made this decision to grow, 
you know, looking at, I want to pay my employees fairly. Like I want to actually start paying myself. Money's going to go a lot further in Arizona. And then even from a tax standpoint, right? I think our taxes at, you know, income tax in the state is 4.5 for businesses or something. And it's like, now it's like 10 or 11 in California. So at scale, you know, as, as we grow, that's hundreds, that's a lot of money. So how can I better, you know, leverage the company and like, actually not leverage, but how we grow it. And, and so, yeah, Arizona has been great. I think we, you know, I, we live in a completely different area that I ever grew up in. And, um, you know, the benefit of that is been able to be, see my parents more, see friends more, things that I kind of, it was a business decision, but now it's at, it's reaped more rewards beyond that. Yeah. So I was at a dinner last night and we were talking about exactly this, right? And so I, I have a guy sitting right next to me, lives in the Bay Area, and he was talking about all of his business owner clients and otherwise that were leaving California. And mainly it's around taxes and yep. really the way that COVID was handled in the state of California. People were just, they're leaving in droves. They're coming here. They're going to Denver. They're going to Salt Lake City. They're going to Dallas and Austin, Texas. And I feel like there's one that I'm missing, but you know, they're, yep. they're going to all of those states because they're from a tax standpoint and, and regulation standpoint as well. They're more business friendly and they're welcoming these businesses in. And then just the fact that your, your dollar goes further, right? I mean, we've got for you personally, but also for your employees, right? I mean, yeah. you can pay an employee, let's just pick a number. Say you're paying somebody 50 or $60,000 a year. Yeah. That's a decent salary here yeah. in California. You're paying you, 70, 80. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's, and, and they're still just barely scraping by yeah. or they're driving an hour and a half each direction to yep. be able to, to handle it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, a lot of businesses are moving. I a hundred percent agree with you. Yeah. I love visiting California, but I, I wouldn't move back personally. What do you think, Ryan? So I, I can't believe we haven't talked about this yet, yeah. but, but the designs themselves. Yeah. How, how does that, I mean, you've got some very unique looks. I mean, yeah. you're, you're pushing the boundaries on certain elements. I mean, how does that come about? What's the process? Yeah. How do you guys, you know, filter through what's, uh, because you're doing those drops you mentioned, how do you decide what you're dropping when and, yeah. and what you're putting out there? It's a the great market? question. I've had to grow up a lot in the last year on this and I'm still learning a ton. So, you know, when it started out, it's like, hey, what is what does Jason want? What am I just going to make and think that works? And I mean, that worked for the first three and a half years, to be totally honest. And um, I think I do. I've always been someone who pays attention to fashion and understands like what's trending. I, you know, I could remember when I was in, you know, fourth grade, I could tell you every single kid, like what shoes they wore, what brands they like. I've been very aware of like brands and fashion my whole life, not intentionally. And, you know, I never had those brands growing up, but I always was aware of it. And so I think that kind of helped grow the business in a sense, right? Like understanding that. So a lot of it comes down to early stages, it was like every single print working with a graphic designer to come in. I don't actually know how to use like Photoshop or Illustrator to that extent. So it's like custom. And then as we grow, right? Oh, there's actually resources. There's actually a huge industry around people selling prints or making prints for companies like ours. So we expanding, we start working with different studios and making stuff. Well, that gets that that's great to a certain point to then, hey, we launched a shirt with bananas on it and it flopped and it didn't sell through, right? Like, or it didn't, flop but it just didn't sell through in the same and then wait uh, my my gut instinct isn't necessarily aligned with the market anymore so we're like okay how do we actually think about that how do we actually plan accordingly so now we're you know we're in stage one of even you know kind of building out a proper product team hired uh, a leader to lead all of our product last uh, summer and he's come in and we're hiring you know he'll probably have five people under him by the end of the year and like there's a whole process of you know trend forecasting merchandising and figuring out what's going to work so prints right like 
right now, every print that goes out are some of someone, uh, it's being surveyed or it's being shared with like a core group of customers who buy from us regularly. We're also looking at trend reports. There's things that it's just like, you know, we're a bigger, we're a bigger, um, company. And so when we talk about risk mitigation, like we have to offset it by at least doing a customer survey or at least getting a second opinion. Like it used to just be like, I had my five friends that I thought had good style and I just shared it with them. But then when you have that not selling through and you're like, okay, now I have to like figure out how to sell a thousand units that are selling a little bit slower. That's a problem that we're trying to avoid. So, um, yeah, just growing up and learning and building systems in place. And I mean, the nice thing is like, we are, you know, not the first apparel company. So plenty of companies do this and we're just hiring people to know how to, you know, actually merchandise and know how to plan accordingly. Yeah. I think it's one of the hardest things to do as an entrepreneur is to start to let go of certain things that you did yourself from the beginning. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it the, the big part of growing a larger business, right. You said you just hit eight figures. So it's, it's a larger, small business in yep. our country, right? But taking off this hat and then taking off the next hat and hiring somebody and trusting that they'll do it the way that you want them to or just as well or better is really hard as an entrepreneur to step away and yep. to allow that, right? It's super hard, yeah. I'm going through a whole phase of that. I'm reading books. I'm trying to meet as many other entrepreneurs as possible. I'm hiring. I have an exec coach that's kind of helped me go through that and just trying to learn more because it, it it's a different game, right? Um, chief everything officer is not something you want to be. And that's not how you scale a business. And so I have to actually delegate and be a leader. I think I'm a, I think I have get, like, I'm, we've gotten to where at because I can put my head down and be a really good operator, but actually to be set a vision and rally people around, it's a completely different game that I'm honestly still learning how to do. Yeah. It, it's hard to do, but it's critical, yeah. right? I mean, if, if you look just purely from a business valuation standpoint and assuming at some point you want to you know, monetize this business for you personally, whatever that looks like, a huge issue or a huge driver, I guess, for value is owner dependency, mm -hmm. right? And so as an owner, even though you're, you know, filling an executive role, you're, you're the owner. If the business can run completely without you, it's worth way more than it is if you're having to work in it day in and day out, you're providing all the direction, everything. Yep. So just, just something to keep in mind, of course, but it's, it's hard to do. It's a really hard transition. And you're right in the thick of it now where you're yep. trying to take that next big leap. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of people that have spoken that wisdom to me. So yeah, I appreciate that. And <laughs> I'm aware and trying to learn. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so the, the branding side, and I think we'll wrap up here, but yeah. the branding side of this makes me think of somebody that we had on very early on in our podcast that has like a clothing boutique in uh, Long Beach, California. Okay. Right. And her demographic, and much like yours, because you're going to continue to get older, and I know you've got some 70-year-old guys that are wearing the stuff too, but if your main demographic, like you mentioned at the beginning, is 25 to 40, you're almost to 40 now being 34 yeah. years old. And so her transition has had to be, I no longer speak to that demographic. She's done a bunch building her brand from a video marketing standpoint. Yeah. And now, because she's 40 years old or close to it, somewhere around there, 20-something-year-old girls who are buying fashion don't want to see a video of a 40-year-old woman wearing the clothes that, that yeah. they should be buying, right? Yeah. And so have you guys done anything from a marketing standpoint or do you have plans from a marketing standpoint to feature different aged people wearing them, doing certain things? What, what, what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, something I'm very aware of. And I think there's, you know, I think there's something about just from a leadership perspective, hiring kind of young guns. I love the idea. Um, 
of people who are hiring people who are in their late 20s or early 30s who can grow up and, and still be core to the brand. Um, I think if we start hiring too senior above that, it, particularly around product and, um, you know, uh, marketing, I think it, there can be a disconnect sometime. So yeah, we have like our team now is like strategically, they have a lot of shelf life left, if I would say that. Um, and even if they grew beyond 40, right? Like there's still things you can do to be aware and understand that. And a lot of companies do that. I think from a marketing standpoint, I mean, we have on our website now, we have a bestseller slide um, and it shows it's like four, four young guys. And then there's like one of the, there's like a grandpa with them or something like that. So we still show that to be inclusive. It also is fun, right? Like it shows yeah. something like, why is this old guy wearing a, a shirt? Well, oh, this is a cool brand, you know? We also show young, like we have our kids collection dropping out. We do it around Father's Day every year. That's coming out too. So we show it. But I think it's really just a matter of like, how are we, you know, how do our visuals, how does the creative, right? The visuals, the design, everything stay relevant to that target demographic. And so whether you're a 70 year old making and you know how to write copy for a 30 year old, that's great, you know? And so, yeah, there's, there's kind of double-edged sword to that. That's ultimately where being a creative, if they can actually, it's like being an actor, right? If you can only act in one way, then you're not really truly an actor. But if you can be creative, you can actually take your skills and put them in different audiences and speak to people versus being, oh, I can only market to myself. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's funny because there are those actors where you feel like they're in a different role on a yeah. different show, but their their persona is exactly the same in all the different shows. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, I was in production before this. So I worked a lot with actors and casting and all that. And it's like, yeah, there, you can tell when someone's like actually has the ability to like work in and bring a different character to life. So, yeah, for sure. Well, I've appreciated the conversation. Anything you want to close with, Ryan? No, I, I think a lot of great stuff. I love a few of those words of wisdoms of the calculated risks, I think is a really good thing to think about and, and seeing the tail end of success. I, I wrote that down. I really like that one because I think that is very true. It's it's an easy paradigm to get in where you see the tail end, but not everything along the journey and exciting journey ahead for you. So thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, being Appreciate an it. entrepreneur is hard. So just just leave us with website address or whatever you'd like uh, those would yeah you know, um, so our see. website is badbirdygolf.com we're on all social at badbirdygolf and yeah if you're in Scottsdale come check out our retail store um, in Kirland also check us out in your local golf shop awesome thanks so much for being here Jason appreciate it thanks guys you've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.